0: We're here today with Marcella Sapone, the CEO of Hello Alfred. Welcome, Marcella. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining Series A. So let's dive right in. Tell us a little bit about what Hello Alfred is for, let's say your grandmother was listening to this. What would you tell her Hello Alfred is?
1: So Hello Alfred is in-home dedicated help that helps you get your to-dos done every week.
0: Okay, so what kinds of to-dos can Hello Alfred help you do?
1: So most people have chores to make sure that their life kind of hums along, and that's you know, going to the grocery store, doing their laundry, keeping their home clean. So we kind of focus on those basics, and then we're also there to help with all the other things that come up in life. So if you need to get something installed, if you need to buy a gift, um, something repaired, basically anything you can think of. It sounds like a high-end butler service. That is something we are called. So many people call us a shared butler service.
0: A shared butler. But it also sounds very expensive. Is it for only rich people?
1: No, the idea is we wanted to make help accessible to as many people as possible. So we have a $32 a week price tag for you to get personalized help that you can rely on.
0: That's amazing. I think that's so affordable for almost anybody, right? $32 a week?
1: Yeah, I think it makes a really big difference in in how you operate. It's a total change to your life.
0: What do you get for $32 a
1: week? So for $32 a week, you get a dedicated person who is going to visit you every week in your home, oftentimes while you're at work. And we are going to pick up your groceries and put them away in your fridge. We're going to pick up your dry cleaning and laundry, take off the plastic, and hang it into your closet. We're going to make your bed, straighten up after you. And um, if you're getting a professional clean, let the home cleaner in. And then we do an assortment of other tasks, like pick up your mail, deliver packages, maybe put some fresh flowers on your counter.
0: So if time is money, you've saved me tons of time, and thus money, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, so the way we calculate it, we're at least saving our customers two hours a week. And some people actually say we are saving them 20. So it's really uh, about leveraging us to get more done.
0: From the customer's perspective, Do customers worry about security that must be the first question
1: right so for us i think about it is we only are selling one thing and that's a relationship of trust so for us finding trustworthy intuitive smart people that we then deeply vet and are constantly um, training and spending time with and really know as a part of our extended family they're in fact our employees we're able to offer a high quality relationship that that I trust, and our customers trust. And where do you find these folks? So they kind of come in two main flavors. Um, one is uh, stay-at-home moms who know the neighborhood and are who are looking for a little bit of work during the day while their kids are at school, and they're really good at getting things done and kind of navigating the home and making it feel like your home and not just your apartment and then uh, more of a creative class of people who are on broadway or musicians artists therapists but who are looking for a little bit of stable income
0: great so how has alfred changed as the on-demand economy has grown
1: So when we started, we thought about it as a service layer that would sit on top of other on-demand services. We wanted to be the one-stop shop, the one app, the one interface for you to get things done. And as a result, kind of handle all of the customer service issues that came up and kind of be an insurance for when things went wrong. Now, what we found as time has gone on and these on-demand services have really had to prove themselves, is that not all of the services really had their unit economics figured out. So they were offering cleanings for $30, maybe dry cleaning below market prices. And what has kind of happened is you are seeing people struggling to kind of keep these businesses running, and then, two, to deliver consistent quality. So what we had to do was take a big step back and say, okay, well, if we can't glue it together, we're going to do it ourselves. And so we've really spent a lot of time to make sure that we are really offering you the best cleanings, the best laundry and dry cleaning services, and then picking groceries. While we do rely on Instacart a lot, they they are pretty good. We also supplement with our own buyers. So we're going all in to make sure that we are delivering a consistent, high-quality experience week after week.
0: That's great. Tell me a little bit about how you came up with this idea, you and your Co-founder?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So my co-founder, Jessica Beck, and I were at Harvard Business School, and we were kind of taking a break from our careers. She worked at McKinsey, and I was working in finance, and we were working really long hours. And when we were at HBS, we were trying to figure out the life thing, which is like, what do we want to do for our career? What did we want in our personal relationships? How did we want to have a social life? And it just felt like an impossible thing to balance all of those things. So we reached out to a bunch of women who had some high profile careers, whether it be in finance, or VC, or tech, or media. And we asked them basically how they did it.
0: Wait, you didn't reach out to me?
1: (laughs) That was a mistake. So hopefully you'll answer the question the same way, which was, well, how did you do it? And all of them had one thing in common, and that was help. Mm. They all had some support system that allowed them to focus at work when they were at work, to be present when they were at home, and then to kind of manage the household work that we all have together with their spouse or their partner. And so for us, it was, well, we can't really afford a personal assistant or a stay-at-home nanny, and my mom's not moving in with me tomorrow, so how do we do that? And so it became a question of how do we find really high-quality people and then share the cost of their time with other people? And that's where the concept kind of came about. So,
0: I'm kind of shocked that nobody's come up with this idea before and executed against it as well as you guys have cuz I actually am a customer. I've got a full disclosure here. I decided to try it out and I just got addicted to it. It's just such a relief to be able to come home and know that someone has watered my plants and checked my mail on Tuesdays and I know this young woman now and I I like her. But It does shock me that nobody else has tried this before. Is it because it just seemed like too hard to do?
1: Yeah, so it's a pretty simple concept, but you would be surprised. When we first started, people thought it was silly, kind of ridiculous and and really hard to execute. And I would say like the number one barrier to entry in this is this is just really hard to do. It's lots of moving pieces. You really have to care. And it's a people business. You have to inspire and find great people and deliver week after week after week. And so if you want to be in the service industry, this is, <laughs> this is a good candidate. You should join us on our team. But I think the other thing is people have a hard time asking for help, especially women. And I don't think that many of us think about our time and do this cost-benefit analysis like how much is your time worth and so i think about this a little bit like selling a personal trainer it's a lifestyle change it will literally change how you operate but what makes you want to try it and what gives what gives you this okay today it's january 2nd and i'm going to go to the equinox down the street and i'm going to sign up for personal training it, it's kind of that type of sale. You have to really get to a point where you're a little bit frustrated, you want to get organized, and you're looking for a little bit of a silver bullet. And that's us.
0: Yeah, I think about the history of massage too. In the early days of massage, you know, it was considered this great, tremendous luxury that was only offered in spas. Right. You only did it when you were really rich or really. I mean, you never did it for, thera- for therapeutic reasons. Right. You just went to it as a huge luxury. And now, if you look around you, people are getting massages more and more often. Sometimes once a month, some people once a week. And they realize that it's therapeutic. It's, it's a mental health thing. And it's not optional. It's actually, it, it's about your health. And I think if you guys could frame your business and your service as a sim- in a similar way, this is going to not seem like a luxury and like a butler service, but more like this enables me to, as you said, clear my mind, to be present at home, you said, and to also be pr- very present at work. Because I've basically offloaded some of the junk, you know, the stuff that has to get done that is bogging me down. Right, right? that
1: cognitive load. I really yeah, like cognitive that. Cognitive
0: load. That's good. Unload. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> Clean <laughs> mental and physical space. Yeah.
0: No, it's, it's going to get to that place yeah. where you, your service will be seen as not just a luxury or a silly, you know, a silly thing to add on to your life, but an actual necessity to keep your mental health. That's what I see this as. Let's talk a little bit about some of the challenges, though, that you faced. Obviously, you had a great idea and you had some ideas for how you were going to execute it. But had you ever run a company before?
1: No, I had, I've never run a company before. I've had plenty of ideas and I've worked on plenty of teams and I've managed people a little bit. But really going all in and building a business that's profitable, sustainable, venture-backed, and scales is definitely a challenge. Um, but when you look at the stats... First-time founders have the highest probability of success. And I think it's because we're a little naive and don't know what we're getting ourselves into. And I think that's at play here, too. <laughs> is that true? First-time founders? Come on. It's true. <laughs> Are you saying serial entrepreneurs
0: like me, we're going to fail at our second companies? No.
1: That's a, another breed. I hope to be a serial entrepreneur one day. But but, but wait. So who were the first-time founders, then?
0: Compared um, to who?
1: So this is first-round capital did a, a study and I think that there's like the serial entrepreneur, and then they were looking at other people who fail, and it's they've had a startup before. So I can't name one right now, but let's say that you started Ning, and now you're doing another startup.
0: So uh, so you are saying the serial entrepreneurs are more likely to fail. <laughs> it's not me. It's first round. I'm, I'm more likely to fail. I think you're right. I absolutely <laughs> agree with you. If I look around me, you know, that's probably why I'm afraid to start another company. Because you've had too much success already? Because I had this success, and it'll only be compared to your second book, right? Right. First time Elizabeth authors. Gilbert. Yeah, right. <laughs> after you're, Eat, Pray, Love, what are you going to do? Yeah, exactly. How can you beat that? And then there's this pressure, this intense emotional pressure. So when you do like, try something else, um, maybe you just push too hard or not enough. or I don't know what happens, but you're right. Most serial entrepreneurs seem to fail after the first one. <laughs> What's one of the challenges, uh, or or take us back to day one. You decide to start the company with
1: your co-founder. How did you guys meet? Yeah, so we sat next to each other in class at HBS. And the way HBS works is the professors come in and out of the classroom. So we spent a good six months sitting next to each other every day passing notes and just thinking through cases together. And it became obvious over time that we were a really good pair we like to say that I start fires and she puts them out or maintains as necessary. So we, we, we really get along and amplify each other's strengths. But it, it really goes back to March two years ago on a white piece of paper, Jess drew a picture of a stick figure moving around a building and doing chores for everyone in the building. And during our spring break, what we essentially did was build the startup for a day. And we just prototyped it, and our goal was to try to get one customer for this potential idea by the end of the day. We put a lot of different postcards under people's doors in different neighborhoods with different price points and different packages, and people signed up.
0: That is crazy. That's how it started. That's so cool. Where would you get the idea to, um, you know, take postcards and put them under people's doors?
1: I don't know. It's just uh,
0: <laughs> I don't know. That creativity. Creativity just Between came to t- me. Between the two of you, which one is more creative?
1: Uh, we have different types of creativity. I would say that I come up with the wild ends of the bell curve, and she figures out how to make things run. Okay. So, <laughs> you need both types of creativity to build something.
0: I, I can't tell you how much creativity is necessary in business and how little valued it is as a concept. Right. So, I value it because I know how.
1: And it's a muscle, and you have to have f- time for it, find time to synthesize and reflect and like find patterns. So this is a big founder problem. When you start to build something, I'm like singularly obsessed with Hello Alfred and it's just my life. It's work, it's play, it's fun, I, I love it. But you have to make sure to widen the aperture. You have to go to museums, you have to read things you don't wanna read and have conversations with people who are, have nothing to do with startups because your creativity starts to erode a little bit when you when you really don't have a lot of exposure to different types of things.
0: Oh, totally agree. But
1: as a startup, you never have that time. <laughs> you have to make it. You yeah. have to make it. But yes, mm-hmm. I have no time. But it, it, I'm in the business of, of giving people back their time. So That's good. I'm trying to practice doing that for myself as well. Yeah,
0: exactly. Um, what did your parents do? I'm always curious.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I think, yeah, we are, our parents really do influence us, whether we like it or not. My mother is a teacher, and she's from a generation of teachers, a family of eight. Almost all of them are teachers, including my grandmother, who was a math teacher a PhD. She's pretty cool.
0: Oh, that's Um,
1: cool. What does your mom teach? She's taught everything from kindergarten to fifth grade, and we traveled when I was younger. I grew up in Copenhagen and in Paris, and she taught in the international schools there. And then my father was a chemist and eventually worked his way up in a chemical company that was a spin-out of DuPont and turned into an executive, kind of ran North America and Europe for this company. Who taught you your sense of curiosity? You know, they both have it in different ways. My mom is curious about the world, and my father has a really good aesthetic that kind of came from nowhere. He grew up in New Jersey, in you know, a one-bedroom apartment. My grandfather was a teamster. Um, my grandmother didn't graduate from high school, and if she did, I'm sorry, Grandma. Mm-hmm. So. It's, he had natural creativity and like he likes good wine and dinner parties and trying new restaurants. My mom is the one who reads books, though. So. Interesting. Wow, I love it.
0: All right, so let's get back to the company. The biggest challenge that surprised you when you were first starting?
1: That's a good question. The things that surprise you happen later. So, you know, like kind of chugged along. We started with this idea on a piece of paper. We raised some money. It was a little bit easier than I would have expected. We started in Boston. Then we opened a small little office here in New York. And then we expanded in New York. You know, everything was kind of like going as planned. We got on stage at TechCrunch to officially launch in September. We won TechCrunch. You know, it all sounds good. We get some good press. We get some bad press. We learn how to handle press. We start to build the team. We find great people. We hire people from out of eBay and one fine stay. You listen to your VC investors, you're growing the business, you're thinking about what the most important factors are. You get, you're get you hiring more Alfreds, you get more customers. And then you take a step back and you say, OK, what have I accomplished this last year and where do I want to go? And, and what hasn't worked and what has worked? The most surprising thing for me is that you need to observe and kind of let the business run organically. And then step back and give yourself permission to realize that nobody has the answers for you. So I would would really rely on investors or people who have operated a business like this before and have an outsized reaction to their impressions. The thing is, no one knows your business better than you. So you have to find confidence and conviction that comes with not hubris or just kind of peacocking, as they say, but really just observation day in and day out and focused experimentation so what am i trying to prove and really getting good at prioritizing that and making sure you're communicating that across your company mm-hmm. so yeah. for me it was really kind of a self actualization piece that was most surprising i think that's a very interesting point that you make
0: i remember being scared all the time and looking at externally for validation right i would I ran scared for a long time, <laughs> I have to say. And whenever there was another competitor that came up, I was sure right. that the competitor was going to eat my lunch. And I, would, I wasn't a good leader, I have to say. Because I keep saying I have to say. I wasn't a good leader <laughs> because I would basically not be strong in the face of my fear. And I would relay it to some of my team, my colleagues who were closest to me. Right. And I always leaned on them to tell me that we were okay. Because they, right. for some reason, I trusted them to tell me this. And I what I should have done is talk to the customer. Because the customer is the one who really tells you you're okay. And it, you need to have a finger on the pulse of the customer. And if you're making your customers happy, there's a way to survive and a way to thrive as a company. And that's really, it's as simple as that. That's awesome. Um, so I learned that the hard way just after much, much pain, but it sounds like you learned it more quickly.
1: Yeah, I'm still learning. I think, you know, a little bit of vulnerability is good, and I still default to questions and getting my team's opinions and that really, like, here's the line. But I think you're right. I think you're building a company along with your customers more than anything else.
0: Okay, so getting back to, yeah, so <clears throat> you learn a lot. You learn a lot about leadership, about yourself, about your strengths and weaknesses as you're growing a company. Talk about a little bit about how you chose to hire your employees as W-2s,
1: meaning full-time employees, right? Right. Uh, versus as freelancers. What made you do that? Yeah, that was a pretty critical, mission-critical decision for us and a hard one. When we were looking back in the early days, we, before we launched officially, we did use 1099 contractors. And the reason we did that is it gave us a lot of flexibility. Um, it's cheaper, you don't have to pay benefits, and you can change the wages at any time. And you can't train people. It's, a, it's actually illegal to train people. And that became a sticking point for us. Like, of course we have to train people, you know, that, that we wanna have a standard quality of care and, and a way of doing things. And so we had to step back and figure out a way to build our model where the unit economics worked with a W-2 employee. And well, that so we did.
0: scared the hell out of your oh, investors.
1: Yes, it did. God.
0: They were avoiding that.
1: <laughs> I, I still remember pitching an investor and him looking at our model and asking about a 2% change here or there. And I kind of knew he wasn't the right investor for us based off of that. He wasn't focused on the vision. And if you're focused on 2%, you're not going to allow us to like, do a W-2 employee because it just didn't make business sense at the time.
0: Right, right. You have to kind of go with it and trust your instincts.
1: Right. And putting people at the center of our business has been the reason we have been successful so far.
0: Tell us a little bit about the success so far. So what do you consider success?
1: A couple of things. One, we have a pocket, a large pocket, a growing pocket of customers who are having an extraordinary experience, who are talking about the experience and who are referring us to their friends. I I believe that is the only way you grow a business like this. It's through referrals and it's through experiences where we become a necessity, as you've said, in your life. The second, for me, the second piece of success is really having a process to learn as a company. So how you work as a team, collaborating, get, being as productive as possible, but also being really focused on how did we fail and what did we learn from it? Because failing and making mistakes as you go along is good and necessary. You need to fail early, and we've made lots of mistakes across the board. But you need to figure out a way to talk to your team and as a company as a whole and say, what did we learn and act on that? And and I think that's what I consider success, those two main things. Well, from an investor or yeah. from a, you know... We'll- yeah, external. External, uh, you'd probably say, okay, we want TechCrunch Disrupt. We've become a thought leader in the sharing economy. The Department of Labor, the Secretary of Labor have, have called us out as being kind of a white hat in the industry. And we've been invited to the White House. Um, we were the face of consumer tech for Forbes 30 under 30. I've opened the NASDAQ Bell. We've won awards from Goldman Sachs. and We got nominated for the Financial Times Boldness and Business Award, which Uber has won, and a bunch more stuff like that. Um, We've been an economist in New York Times, cover of B1 Business. What are the metrics that are going to tell me you're going to be here
0: next year, two years from now, five years from now?
1: I would ask three things. Customers customer growth and their MPS, retention, and what are your unit economics? And I think that we have a pretty good answer to each of those. We have sacrificed the speed of growth. We could be a lot bigger than we are to focus on unit economics that make sense so we can grow profitably. That's good. And customer MPS and making sure that we're really like giving a high-quality experience. For the... Newcomers, what is NPS? Uh, it's net promoter score. So it's the likelihood that you as a customer are going to say, Alfred's awesome, and you should try it. And then the third thing? You in economics? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just making sure you're profitable. Right. And operating profitable. And, you know, you can invest in the future. We're building tech, so we have a little bit of corporate overhead, so we're not completely profitable. But I, that is my desire and hope. But that's also why you raise venture funding. So it's this balance between scaling and, and making sure you have a good product.
0: This is very interesting. You're approaching this totally differently than other types of companies. You realize that, right? Yeah,
1: I do. I know I'm kind of going out on a limb here, but it works for us. But tell me why it's surprising to you.
0: Well, because you keep hearing these things about these founders who just go for growth and then they worry about profitability later. Of course, then they're caught with their pants down during an economic crisis, which everyone tells us we're going through, but I haven't seen evidence of it too much yet in terms of startups and valuations. Right. (laughs) So... That's interesting. Was that your idea or whose idea was that?
1: Yeah, that um, that was our idea. And it went back to those that W-2 choice. It actually was a consequence coming out of that, which was we wanted, we didn't know if it was going to work. And I think that's kind of like permeating us from the very beginning. Like we weren't totally confident and we just needed to kind of like prove each bit of the business. So the idea was we weren't going to start a group of customers until we knew that it was going to be a profitable Alfred route for us. And so we don't start people until we have operations that make sense in that neighborhood. And that's made all the difference. So we know that every customer we add is going to be positive ROI for us.
0: Yeah, and you realize how hard it is for competitors to do this. Yes. So it's not like you need to... to grab right. You know, do a huge land grab and grab all the market yeah it's
1: not a winner take all game right now and and especially like actually if we are in a downturn a, a couple of founders I've heard say like I hope we're in a downturn because it will reset everything salaries will go back to normal there'll be a supply of great people and you can really focus on your mission and people are not joining for the wrong reasons. Do you think uh, your customers will be price sensitive during a downturn too? Yeah, I am a little bit worried about that because again, we are trying to be an accessible luxury. And again, I don't think of us as a luxury, I think of us as a necessity and a utility. But there are a lot of people where we are saving them time and money. And so it allows them to focus on work. And I, I think that psychologically helps you feel like you're being efficient, and, it, and it's not a nice-to-have. It's a must-have. As we think about the worst-case scenario, though, where we will go is kind of being a subscription that gives you access to discounts. So by using Alfred, you have cheaper dry cleaning or cheaper home cleaning or access to discounts that you wouldn't have if you were an individual buyer. And so that's where the model will go if we really hit a place where the economy is not in great shape. So let's, that brings me to the
0: question about your product roadmap. I could think of a million ways, well, maybe not a million, but a bunch of ways where you could grow yes. and change. For example, I desperately need somebody who's going to service all of my appliances and keep them maintained in my apartment. So from my ice maker to my wine fridge, now I have an extraordinary number of appliances, but still... And I would pay somebody to read those manuals and once a year, every six months, winterize this, you know, maintain that so it doesn't break down and I have to replace it. That's one area that I would, I would love you guys to go in. You must have other ideas. So in terms of your product roadmap, what, what's the biggest thing you think is out there for you that you're going after?
1: Well, I think we're the biggest real estate play that I know of into the home. And so that really covers a lot of ground. There's this long tail of things that happen inside your home, whether you're buying furniture and doing interior decorating to, you know, my clothes and my outfits or food, cooking, healthy food, how to cook. All of those things are fair game for us. We do have to focus right now and really focusing on putting your home on autopilot with the three or four core services that everyone uses, that's kind of year one year two for us but I, I cannot tell you how much I, I want to go into that long tail and just I- explode it out and really pay attention to where people are in their lifestyle and just give relief because there's so many things that we could help with. So you've raised 13 million dollars so far at is that a series A? What? Where, yeah so we publicly have done a seed and a series A. <laughs> and what do
0: you mean publicly?
1: It means I've officially <laughs> told the world about our two raises.
0: Okay. So there's no other raises that you're quietly saving. Quietly, quietly. (laughs) What was the most difficult part of raising capital?
1: I think it's choosing your investors. And it's kind of like choosing at college. Do you go to the fanciest, best-name college, or do you go to one where you feel like you are really going to be your best and be challenged, and it's going to make you hit your potential? And so you have to find investors who believe in you, believe in the idea, and believe in the product. Because I think about this as a subscription business, it's a consumer SaaS business, and SaaS businesses take two years to build the initial kind of software, to build the initial protocol, the operating system. And I kind of had a gut feeling that would be the same for us. And so I was going to investors and I was like, you have to believe that this will work and it will take us a little while. It's not gonna be an overnight success. And by the way, Uber didn't even expand to its second city until month 18. So, you know, they've been at it six, seven years and it looks like it's been an overnight success. And I I think it's kind of like the sleeper company that kind of wins big and I and I think people bought in to that but people other people had different views which was get big fast be in a lot of cities put the price low make it zero basically give it away for free and then charge margin on all the spend going through and I just don't believe that makes sense with the ethos of our business let's break it down first talk about your seed yeah You don't
0: have a lot of choice when you're raising a seed. No, you don't. Most people. So you said yours came together pretty easily. Was this in Boston?
1: Yeah, which is actually a pretty hard place to raise money. How did you do that? So Jess and I took a semester off from business school. And we spent that semester building our business, but also meeting people and meeting a lot of uh, VCs, getting a a sense of their culture and the different partners. So we had kind of a lay of the land and then when we went, we went back to business school for a semester, we won the Harvard Business School um, business competition. And in that competition, the judges were VCs. And so out of that competition, we kind of had our first verbal term sheet. And that kind of kicked off a process of like, OK, well, if we had to raise, who do we want to raise from? And so we spent some time in the West Coast for about a week and a half, met some more VCs, came back to the East Coast, and then kind of like picked the person that we were most inspired by. and Who was that? Bijan Sabay, who is at Spark Capital. So he was one of the first investors, if not the first investor, in Tumblr and in Twitter. And he has amazing product instincts and believed in the product and believed in us and kind of let us make our decisions. He wasn't a micromanager, and I think that was really important for us.
0: How can you tell sometimes, though? I mean, you meet these people. They're very charming. Yes. And they say whatever it takes because they want the optionality of being able to invest, especially if you become a hot deal. Right. So, how do you tell the difference between someone who's just talking the talk and someone who's going to actually be there
1: for you? Yeah, and it changes also, like they like to, like whether we're in a a good period or a bad period, I like to say that founders have power or the investors have power. And I guess at the time that I was raising a year ago, founders had a little bit more leverage. So, we got to pick. I, I think you, the number one thing you do is you go find the company that failed, and you ask them what was it like to work with them? And if they, you still get a glowing recommend, recommendation, then you know that you found somebody that you want to build a business with. You mean a company that failed that was part of that VC's portfolio? Right. That's a lot of work, though,
0: right? You don't do that in the beginning. You do that when you decide. Yeah,
1: when you have a couple of options. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing.
0: And what about your Series A? When did that happen?
1: We raised our series A in the fall after we won TechCrunch Disrupt, and then we announced it basically the end of spring in May, I think. So we waited a little bit before we told people about it because I just didn't want it to be a distraction. And we chose NEA to lead that. Scott Sandel, who runs NEA, is on our board. And he's a pretty impressive guy. He's been in Workday and and Bloom Nation and a a bunch of big SaaS deals. Back to understanding subscription businesses. Great. Yeah. Did you have any problems being a female? (laughs) That's the inevitable question I have to ask that. I mean, like everyone has their stories. I have my own stories. But the way I, I like to approach it is to just not make it a factor. And I operate under the assumption that you're not going to either. And that's worked so far. Now, I'm not afraid to address the issue. And I I think that there are specific things that female founders have to do a little bit differently. Oh, what are they? You have to come in with a pitch that has data. You have to have operated the business. It can't just be an idea on a piece of paper. You need to have confidence and conviction and not change your mind quickly in front of them based off of every question they ask. And you should be willing to say, I don't know but I I can find out. And approach things in a super clinical, unemotional way. I think that's very important. I think, however, like for example, if I get invited to be on a panel of all women to talk about female founders and and how hard it is to raise, I'll politely decline because that's just making the issue an issue again.
0: Yeah. (laughs) But I mean, I hate to say it, but some of these things you pointed out, these are great strategies, but it's it's bothersome that we have to have strategies that are different, right? Because yeah. I've seen guys raise on with no data, who haven't operated, who don't have total confidence, who shift during the meeting, and who, don't, who aren't necessarily clinical. I mean, I've seen them raise, you know, just yeah. based on a piece of paper, like, I don't Yeah, deal. and I'm
1: sure females have too. Probably the point is, like, the world's not fair, so you play with the cards that you're dealt, and there are a couple of things that happen just organically and i don't think that there's like malintent but I'll give you one example an investor it was all men in the room and he said to me i just don't buy it i don't think anyone will use this like i we do this ourselves just fine and i said do you do it he goes no my wife does it and i said okay does your wife pack lunches okay that means she's buying lunch food every week that means she's thinking about it right What if she could not do that and instead got to go to the gym for 30 minutes? How do you think she would feel? And it was like a lack of ability to empathize. So the one thing you hear from VCs a lot is, I don't see myself using it. So you just have to have a good response to that because it will come.
0: What did he say after you said, wouldn't your wife like that?
1: He's like, maybe I'll have to ask her.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Okay. Any fun stories about Alfred you'd like to share?
1: I think people use the platform in fun ways. We've had a lot of marriage proposals and aided in in their (laughs) (laughs) delivery. Um, Rooms full of balloons or orchids or getting all of these different parts to come together on the street corner all at the same time. Musicians and like a whole bunch of stuff and video cameras. That's really fun to be there for really moments that are memorable and full of joy. And I think that's important that you associate Alfred with that because we become a part of your life and and help you have a life where you're really enjoying things and not worried about that to-do list. That's awesome.
0: What is the most unusual thing you guys have ever been asked to do for a family, for a household?
1: Unusual things usually gravitate towards living things. Like, can you buy me the blackest koi fish? (laughs) And can you transport my dog from downtown all the way uptown (laughs) Uh, on moment's notice? And then there's like, there's, there's some strange things that people do in their homes naturally. Like, but st- what is strange? We're all, we're all different. And it's like uh, anthropology experiment. But um, I thought one request that seems a little strange to me, but it, I guess it makes sense is can you buy furniture, install it, take pictures and then return it so I can see what it looks like?
0: Oh my God. That is really. Yeah,
1: that's out there. That's, that's out there. That is so much work. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> we, we, we didn't do it. We're like, actually, we could probably Photoshop it for you. Yeah. And I think that's important, just like being clever to how you do things.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, this has been a tremendous pleasure meeting you and talking about your company. Is there anything
1: I didn't ask that I should have? No, other than the fact that you should sign up. You should try Alfred, and if you put Laurel's name in the referral code, we will let you try it out for two weeks, and I think it's going to change your life. (laughs) HelloAlfred.com.
0: HelloAlfred.com, and my name is Laurel, L-A-U-R-E-L, in case you don't realize Thanks for coming in. I really appreciate it.